This week, we start our new series, In Christ Alone. We'll be going through the book of 2 Timothy. Now, Timothy is a, a young man who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy, Paul basically writes a, a kind of church manual, as we see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, where Paul writes, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. But here in 2 Timothy, Paul writes a much more personal letter. And though he intended it to be read by all and allowed in the church in Ephesus, it is also clear that this letter was intended to encourage Timothy as he persevered in the ministry of the gospel. And that is my prayer for us as well. That as we read and journey through this book of 2 Timothy, that we also would be encouraged to persevere in the ministry that God has called us to. So the title of the series is In Christ Alone. This week, the text largely focuses on a different member of the Trinity. The one that the Father sent to us, the Helper, the Spirit. Let's read. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. We read the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love. And self control. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. There is a story whose signature phrase, I think I can first occurred in print in a 1902 article in a Swedish journal. An early published version of the story appeared in the New Tribune, the New York Tribune on April 8, 1906, as part of a sermon by Reverend Charles S. Wing. A brief version of the tale also appeared under the title Thinking One Can in 1906 in Wellspring for Young People, a Sunday school publication. The story continued to be passed along and bounced around until we have what has become the best-known version of the story, The Little Engine That Could, by Waddy Piper. It's a story of a, a train full of gifts that is meant for a city on the other side of the mountain. But the engine assigned to deliver the toys runs out of fuel. 
The Tories try to flag down a few more engines that are very strong and capable of bringing them up the steep mountain to the children on the other side, but these engines consider themselves to be overqualified and and too important to have toys as their cargo. And then along comes a little engine. And this engine, though she's never been up the mountain before, and though she's is seemingly unqualified and too weak to, uh, to get the job done, she agrees to give it a shot. And as she's chugging up the mountain, putting this, pulling this weight that should be too much for her to carry, she says to herself over and over again, I think I can, I think I can. And sure enough, she does. This story is often used as an example to encourage us to do things that seem like they're too big for us. It's an exercise in positive thinking. And that's all well and good. Positive thinking can be a healthy practice. And sometimes positive thinking can fall flat. If we were to put ourselves into this story as the little engine, and we were to substitute the toys for the children of the mountain village with the gospel, the good news for the world. How many of us would be sitting there with our engines idling, looking at the task before us, this huge mountain of obstacles and struggle before us, and instead adopt the mantra, I think I can't, I think I can't, I think I can't. We look at the overwhelming amount of work that needs to get done. We look at the the hard conversations that have to happen. Maybe they are the hard conversations of confronting a brother or sister in Christ in their sin when we feel totally unqualified to do so because our sin is so readily apparent to us. Or maybe it's the uncomfortable experience of proclaiming the gospel to someone that you aren't sure is going to be receptive to it. Or maybe it's the awkward experience of bumping into someone you used to know and and catching up on life and knowing you're supposed to invite them to church. Or maybe it's the terrifying experience of being called to missions overseas, way outside your comfort zone, so far from home and comfort and safety. Now, there's a good chance that it's none of those for you. But there's 100% chance that God is calling you to do something that is so far outside your realm of ability or comfortability. And so you are standing before that mountain with the engine idling and thinking, I think I can't. I think I can't. I think I can't. If that's you this morning, then... You aren't too much different than the recipient of our letter, Timothy. Timothy is scared. He feels in over his head. He doesn't feel qualified. His faith was passed down to him from his Jewish grandmother and mother, but his father is an unbelieving Greek. Paul has has come into his life and encouraged him in his faith and, and become a father figure. They've done a lot of gospel work together, but now they are separated. And Paul, Paul is in jail awaiting his execution while Timothy is the pastor 
of the rebellious Ephesian church. Timothy is young. He's he's inexperienced. He has a weak constitution. He has frequent ailments and a weak stomach. He was timid and by nature a shy young man. Today, we would classify Timothy as an introvert. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 10 to 11a, Paul writes, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. Paul is having to let the other church leaders, like he's having to let them to know that they need to put Timothy at ease. And not to look down on him for his appearance or his demeanor. Timothy is the direct opposite of Paul. Paul, the the larger-than-life apostle of apostles. The one who calls Peter out publicly on his hypocrisy. The one who lived through shipwrecks and snake bites and imprisonments. The greatest evangelist of the church. Often, when we think of, of, uh, of who God calls to ministry, we, we think of Paul. We think of the most gifted, the most exciting, the best spoken, the most outspoken, the charismatic, the people that others are drawn to. We think of Beth Moore. We think of Billy Graham. And we look at that person and we see nothing of ourselves. And so we, we feel that we can exhale slowly and thankfully unhook that train car behind our little engine and say, I think I can't. We think, I can't be as effective as that person. I can't communicate as well. I can't function as well. I can't get my life together like like they have their life together. I, I can't. Is that you this morning? Surrounding yourself with a blanket of protection that's itchy by nature but comfortable due to constant use. If that is you this morning, I encourage you to be careful how comfortable you get in that blanket and to hold off on unhitching the train cars. For God did not just call Paul. He also called Timothy, the scared, overwhelmed introvert. Oswald Chambers, the Scottish author of the wildly popular devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, has this to say about people who can relate to Timothy. Those of us who are constantly telling ourselves, That we can't. He writes, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they denounce dependence on their natural abilities and resources. God uses people whose society or they themselves has labeled as nobodies or people that can't. 
to bring about his glorious purpose all through Scripture. King David was the youngest of his brothers, and people scoffed when he stood before Goliath with a sling and a few stones, and yet the giant fell. Moses had a hard time stringing words together without fumbling over his tongue, and he is the one who led the Israelites from slavery to freedom. Gideon the coward fought against a vast army with 300 men, some pots, horns, and torches, and left the field of battle victorious. Ehud was a left-handed man, and because he was left-handed, he was despised by society around him. And yet he killed the king of Eglon of Moab in his own courts and then led the people of Israel in battle, throwing off the Moabite oppression. And when God does use those, we expect him to, when he does use the Pauls of the world, it is only after they have been humbled, like Paul on the road to Damascus, recognizing that all of his training, all of his history, all of his talents have been taking him in the wrong direction. And so whether we feel like we have sprung from the shallow end of the gene pool or maybe the deep end for some of us, it does not depend on our own talents, abilities, or stature but on God. And God, he does not abandon us to his mission. He doesn't give us a a list of things to accomplish and then head out the door asking us to make sure that we, we turn the lights off before we leave. He is with us, leading us through the whole journey. This is his mission. And what's more, he has given us gifts to help us accomplish it. When the Holy Spirit was was poured out on each of us, we, like Timothy, received gifts. And what does Paul tell Timothy to do with his gift? Verse 6, we read, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. As a kid, uh, we used to go camping on occasion. We had this pop-up trailer, and we'd, we'd take it around. And... Camping's great in its, in its element. I know some people just love camping and power to you. I don't like waking up wet, so I have a bit of an issue with camping just on a, on a basic level. But the night before is fantastic. Sitting around the fire. Roasting marshmallows and hot dogs and exchanging stories. But before you can get that fire, you've got to build it. And I remember uh, sitting with my dad and he would, he would teach me how to make the fire. And some of us, you know, there, there's that debate between do you, do you use the teepee method? Do you, do you build like the little square house? Like how are you going to make like the fire out of the beginning kindling? But once, once you get that sorted out and you have your paper or your, your dry twigs and leaves or whatever you've got in there and you light the match, and you get there and you get that little bit of a flame, what do you do? You blow on it. A nice, steady, 
breath of air. And I remember watching my dad make the fire. Uh, it wasn't the first time, but the first time it like, began to register for me. And I was like, Dad, what are you doing? You're, you're blowing on the fire. You shouldn't be doing You're going to blow it out. You're going to kill the fire. But I remember sitting there watching him, and he, he would blow on it. And you start to see the, the coals get, or the, the, like the, the, the edge of the paper, you know, or you can just see the, the red rim of, of the, the, the embers. And blows, and you've got flame. And then that flame catches onto the rest of the kindling. And then eventually we can start adding logs and stuff. Now, if we were to go in and, and, and have that, that little flame exposed to a harsh wind right away, well, there it goes. Probably the embers with it, and, and it's done. But, but if we stand and we, we breathe, we breathe oxygen into the flame, which is what fuels the flame, but a steady flow. It builds and builds, and we have a fire. Fanning the flame of our gifts isn't exposing yourself to, to harsh winds and getting overwhelmed. It's consistently blowing on the fire. Using your gifts is an appropriate, in, an, in an appropriate manner. Being stretched, but not biting off more than we can chew. And relying and trusting in God to use our gifts so that we are fed. And so that we grow. And as we grow, we will eventually be able to handle the harsh winds. And those harsher, stronger winds can feed us until we are a raging fire. You think of a, a forest fire. It starts small and grows and grows. And then the fire gets so big that the harsh winds of reality, the, the harsh winds of tribulation and struggle and pain, they don't overwhelm the fire anymore. All they do is they fan it and they blow it around and it gets bigger and more intense. As we use our gifts, the struggle and the pain and the harshness of life will not overwhelm us, but encourage us in what God has given us. Encourage us and strengthen us and grow the gifts that he has given us. Fan the flame. Fan the flame through using your gifts in reliance and trust in Christ. Now, I've, I've heard and read where people have said that if we don't use our gifts, our spark in our text this morning, then your little flame can become embers and then it can go out altogether. I do not agree with them. I think that that is taking an illustration too far because God's gifts don't expire. You don't reach a, a certain age and then just become useless to the king, the kingdom. And kingdom growth. God doesn't tire of us. We don't have an expiration date. He doesn't give up on any of us. He, he doesn't give up on us uh, one day coming to faith. And he doesn't give up on us using the gifts that we have been given with faith through the Spirit. So if you're sitting there worried that your gifts are now useless due to a long period of neglect... Be encouraged. God gave you the gift. He's not going to let the flame go out. Because it's not about you. It's about him. 
In our text this morning, Paul tells Timothy, young, scared, overwhelmed Timothy, whose church is threatening to split and is being attacked by heretics who were once members. Paul tells him that he can use his gifts with confidence because of the spirit that he has been given. The spirit he has been given. Not the spirit he has earned, nor the spirit he deserved, but the one he was given. And then he lays out some aspects of that spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. And he tells Timothy, this is not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. The interaction between what Paul says the spirit is and what he says it isn't is extremely important. First, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a spirit of power. Not that we can suddenly lift cars or leap tall buildings in a single bound, but that our our power, our strength, comes from the Spirit. It comes from God. So we do not rely on ourselves, but on Christ and His promises. That through the power of the Spirit, we are able to do things. Things that we don't think possible, and, and things that frankly aren't possible, outside of the enabling of God, of Christ, of the Spirit. And then we read that the Spirit is a spirit of love. Now often when we think of love, we think of like a, a psychological attraction, the, the feeling, right? The, the butterflies in the stomach, uh, a fondness of heart. But in the New Testament, love is much more than a feeling because it eventually manifests as service for others. And this service is powered by the Holy Spirit. So loving in this context is working through the Spirit for someone's betterment. Which kind of gives a whole new meaning to the phrase love the sinner, hate the sin, doesn't it? Often in, in church today, that gets translated, that, that phrase gets translated, I value them because they are human. I just Don't approve of their actions or lifestyle. When what it should mean is, the Bible doesn't approve of their actions or lifestyle. But I will work for their betterment. I will actively be involved in their lives, not just because, uh, not just spectating and projecting a fondness that I'm, I'm supposed to feel because I'm a Christian, but actively working for someone's betterment. And lastly, Paul writes that the Spirit is a spirit of self-control. Through the Spirit working on our hearts and in our lives, we are given the ability to say no to sin. We can't do it on our own. We are totally depraved human beings lost to sin on our own. But through the enablement of the Spirit, we gain self-control and the ability to say no. Not that we always exercise this ability. We still fail to say no. But because of the Spirit at work in us, no becomes a possible answer. And the more we give it, the more we say no, the easier it is to continue saying no. To continue the resistance. Which is exactly what God wants us to do. So Paul tells us the Spirit is a spirit of power, of love, 
and of self-control. And he says it's not a spirit of fear. Fear. Any of us feel afraid? Any of us feel anxious? Wary? We all do at times. And fear is crippling. Fear is debilitating. It it makes us want to just shut down and, and give in. Fear robs us of power. It makes us feel like we're out of control and, and totally unable. Fear robs us of love. We don't trust others. We, we feel like they're out to get us. That they don't, they don't care about us. We're scared of what they actually think. And, and we don't want to get involved in their lives. What if they don't like me? What if, what if I can't stand them? Better to be alone. Better, better to be safe. And fear robs us of self-control. When we're scared, we, we tend to fall back on, on old vices, to old comforts, anything to, to kill the anxiety, the stress, the fear that is building within us. We don't feel in control, and so we try to take a, a little bit of control back by giving in to things that are harmful to us and that hurt our God. And so fear counteracts the working of the Spirit in our lives. It's no wonder Satan wants us to be afraid. He wants us afraid of our neighbor. He wants us afraid of the secular world and their influence. Because he knows that if we live in fear of them, we won't be loving them. We won't be reaching out to them through the power of the Spirit, with the love of the Spirit. The church in North America has been living in fear for far too long. We need to rest in these words of Paul and recognize that the fear that we feel has not been given to us by the Spirit, but that the Spirit gives us power and love and self-control. And it is through the Spirit and the use of these gifts that the kingdom of God will go forth. This spirit that we have received in baptism, this spirit that we have received through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith that he died on the cross, that he died in our place for our sin and our shame, and that he rose again, defeated sin and death, and that through faith in him we are reconciled to God, through faith in him God can have a relationship with us again. And so we are given this spirit, this spirit of power, and love and self-control. And how comforting is that? How comforting to know that we are not the ones powering the kingdom, but that it is God who is doing the work. He is the one who enables us through His Spirit to be used in His mission to bring about His kingdom. No matter who you are, if you are the big, powerful engine or the engine that has run out of gas or the engine that is too small to logically get the job done, each of us, hooked up to the cargo that is the gospel, looks at that mountain before us and says with all confidence, 
I can't alone. I can't alone. And we are not alone. We are not on this mission alone. Again, it is His mission, and we are joining Him on it. He has called us to join Him and has enabled us through the Spirit to do all that He has called us to do. We can boast in our weakness, for in our weakness He is strong. It doesn't matter how you view yourself. All that matters is how God views you. And when he looks at you, he sees Timothy. A freaked out, broken, overwhelmed individual with quirks and flaws. That he can't wait to use in mighty ways for the work of the kingdom. How awesome is that? How encouraging is that? Church, be encouraged. Be encouraged. What an awesome, amazing, powerful, wonderful, loving God we serve. Amen.